My special guest this morning is a man you're probably already familiar with. He is the host of The Power of Positive Living every Thursday evening here at KGBC. And in our tradition uh, at KGBC of playing musical talk shows, where the talk shows are oftentimes the guests on each other's shows. James Huey has been kind enough to join us this morning, the fully realized Bodhisattva of Thursday night, our positive living. And we're going to pontificate this morning. And you can participate, friends, by calling 744-4567 if you'd like. But, James, that brings me right up to uh, the first time that I had a chance to meet you when you came into the station, I guess close to a year ago. Your overall manner and then the description of your program that you have going on in Galveston and elsewhere, which we're going to get into detail about the history of which momentarily, I was under the impression that you were a minister of sorts and, in fact, was calling people after I met you, Pastor James Huey. I, I wasn't sure whether you were a, a minister or a man of the cloth. You have an ecumenical background of sorts, perhaps a Protestant tradition in your approach to friendship. But first, let's just define exactly what friendship is. That's the overall program, the banner head under which you function in helping people realize themselves. And we want to define first what your overall approach to friendship is, what that means, and to what extent you would delineate that from, say, what is done at church retreats and such. Charles, thank you again for having me, and I appreciate being here. And I guess probably the simplest way that I can define friendship is saying it's a an atmosphere of what I call listening hospitality. Mm -hmm. It's really not anything complex. I look at it as being very simple, but also being very rare. Mm -hmm. Creating an atmosphere, whatever that is, mm -hmm. and wherever it happens to be, whether it happens to be on retreat, mm -hmm. or whether it's conversing at Denny's or mm -hmm. some other place, it's trying to create an atmosphere that people feel okay talking about whatever they would like to talk about. And uh, I hope I can create a, a hospitality that says, Come in and feel safe mm -hmm. to talk about what is important to you. Your educational background, where you're from, family, so forth. Well, my father was in the Navy, so right away that makes us part of the wandering group. And mm -hmm. I probably have continued to wander ever since. In fact, mm -hmm. some people call me a Johnny Appleseed of mental health <laughs> as I go along. So I've wandered quite a bit, and I feel that's probably one of the things that has enriched my perspective being able to interact with a lot of different people in a lot of different settings. Okay, you're from Virginia originally. Correct, Norfolk, Virginia. And you went to college at? I went to college at Towson State mm -hmm. in Maryland, and I got my master's at the University of Montana in Missoula. Mm -hmm. This and was my, in psychology? Yes, I got mm -hmm. my bachelor's degree in political science mm -hmm. and education. <laughs> and in fact, I was going to be an attorney, Charles, when I started out. And fortunately, I was wise enough to take the different turn in the road because that would have been an error. What brought you to that turn in the road? Well, we were a family of limited means, and mm -hmm. I, I was planning to go in to be an attorney, and uh, the state of Maryland offered me a scholarship if I would teach. They would pay all my fees for a year if I would teach for a year. There was such a teaching shortage at that time. Mm -hmm. So I accepted two years of scholarship, and then when I got into actually teaching, I found out that the thing that I did best was basically listening to ninth graders who had no one to listen to them. And the time before school, the time after school, the time at lunch, just to converse. It was important because here I was an adult who offered them the chance to be heard. And I found that that was the real gift. And that's where I left political science and went over into counseling psychology. 
Okay, and that's when you decided to adopt your master's program in psychology. Well, I had a choice at that time. I came mm -hmm. to a fork in the road, and one fork marked going off to seminary and becoming mm -hmm. a pastor, and the other marked going off into a master's program and getting it in psychology. Now, what had brought you down the road incorporating the possibility of being a pastor? So there, there is some of that in your background. It's not just your overall manner. You actually were at one time debating on taking training to become a pastor now. Delineate that thread in your life for us up to that fork in the road that we're just now talking about. A conversation I had with a very wise friend who said, which road will give you the chance to do what you really want to do, which is mm -hmm. to listen to people? And it probably wasn't completely accurate, but I found myself saying, pastors, I would be defined as a preacher mm -hmm. as versus a pastor. And I found a chance that I thought I could listen and hear what people were saying and feeling more effectively in psychology. What had caused you to think about becoming a pastor in the first place before you decided to veer into something a little different? My faith is very important to me. Mm -hmm. And I sense that this was one of those things that I believe God calls me to be here at certain times in various aspects of my life. A lot of times I have no idea where they are or mm -hmm. what I'm going to be doing when I'm there. I wanted to consider that as an alternative. What is it that put that germ in you of wanting to listen to other people and help them discover themselves, uh, either as a pastor or as a psychologist? I find myself really interested in what people are saying. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that my parents told me very early was, you know, people like to be around you because you listen to them. Mm -hmm. And I put that together, and it seemed to me like once I left the legal profession and saying that's not the opportunity, the pastorate was still a possibility, but it sounded like counseling psychology would even be more effective. The idea was saying people like to be around you because you will listen to them. Mm -hmm. And I had fun at it. Mm -hmm. I mean, even to this day, I enjoy listening to what people have to say about themselves. You had a strong moral training background where your parents were members, I guess, of per what particular faith? They were like me. They were what I call eclectic Protestants, basically a Protestant background, mm -hmm. but feeling very comfortable with a variety of faiths. We grew up in the Baptist faith and then the Methodist and the Presbyterian mm -hmm. and so forth. In fact, I spent my junior year in college. One of the things I set up for myself in my own personal growth was that I went to a different house of worship every weekend throughout my junior year in college. In other words, I wanted to participate in the Catholic and the Jewish and all kinds. And being in the city of Baltimore, we had a wide diversity. Mm -hmm. That was important for me to realize that faith and spirituality was much more than religion. It had a, a deeper appeal to the, mm -hmm. the inner part of man. So you've gotten to the level now where you're entering your master degree program in clinical psychology. Counseling psychology. <clears throat> okay. Was there ever a feeling that you wanted to get into med school and become a psychiatrist? You didn't really want to deal with it necessarily on an organic level too terribly much. You, you were looking at counseling psychology really as a, a positive way for James Huey to express wanting to deal with people and helping them understand themselves better, not necessarily from a clinical standpoint. Well, I really wanted to reach for the average person, Charles, what I was calling the typical person, mm -hmm. typical people with typical problems. Mm -hmm. Clinical psych basically works with the illness. In mm -hmm. fact, the illness even becomes more important than the person carrying it a lot of times. 
Do you think that depends, though, on the psychiatrist? Very uh, much so. Okay. But at the time that I was making the, those decisions, I think it was even more so that psychiatry was looking at it as a medical model. They did mm. not see it so much as a person, but as a particular series of symptoms. Mm. Psychiatry has modified over the years, too. Mm. But I felt psychology would give me a better chance of working with people like you and me in our typical everyday lives with normal stresses and strains. Why has it taken 2,000 years, do you think, since the development of civilization, or 5,000 years ago, to get to the 20th century and boom, Sigmund Freud, all of the greats, uh, Carl Jung of the early 20th century movement toward understanding the human psyche. What is your feeling about that? And is psychology, therefore, just in its infancy? And are we still growing in our approach of understanding how to yes, deal with it? Yes, it is definitely in its infancy. I have no doubt in my mind. When I think of how much has been learned in the last 25 years, mm -hmm. I mean, I just am amazed at what, when I was in graduate school, versus what is known now. It's just a terrific amount. One thing, we have now progressed up Maslow's hierarchy of mm -hmm. need to the point where basically I don't have to go out and fight to get some bread on my table. I don't have to have a great deal of difficulty finding shelter. I'm not locked under some land baron who mm -hmm. decides who I will marry, how many kids, and what plot of ground I will till. There are lots of things that have changed <laughs> that now we've gone up this hierarchy to where we can now start getting toward the concept that we are people and we have the time and the income to self-actualize. I have time now to realize that I as a human being have much more than just feeding and clothing and housing myself. In discovering that you were someone that liked to listen to people's problems and wanted to somehow find a professional avenue for developing that, is the fact that one feels that he has no one to listen to him strictly a 20th century phenomenon? Is Again, I want to try to understand why is it that we focus so much on the problems that people have now. This was not done for 5,000 years until this century. Obviously, this isn't a fad. A lot is being done in trying to understand people's psychological motivations and how they interrelate to each other. But I guess in the short run of history, going back just a little bit of a ways, why is it that we're we have a greater population in the world, more apparent interaction, more means of communication with telephone and television. Why do we feel more alone and isolated at the same time? I, since the very same things that are bringing us together technologically are also tend to separate us emotionally. So-called old days of living on the land baron's domain, you had your family, you were there in that particular spot for year after year after year. You got to know everybody in the village, everybody knew you, everybody supported you. Uh, if you had time to sit and talk, in the evenings you could sit around the fireside and do the laundry, do the canning, dry the food, skin the game, or whatever it is. But you had lots of people. Now, people tend to go to work, and then they go home. Like, for example, I live in an apartment, and I don't know most of the people there, and most of the people don't know me. We go into our little houses, we close the door, we keep the air conditioning going, and we have very little interaction with the people around us where we live. A lot of people go to work, but the work tends to be competitive. There isn't a sense of being able to be open and being vulnerable to letting people know who you are because, once again, we tend to value competition so much as versus the old days of supporting one another. 
because uh, that was the way people survived was to help one another. I don't see that as much now. Do you think in spite of the horrific atmosphere, what with the plague and sewer-infested narrow streets that a lot of people lived in back in those days, we're speaking primarily about Europe now, in that kind of unenlightened time, one, one is glad not to live in it. You mentioned that we're freed of a lot of the problems that we had back then as far as hunger and housing. To a great extent, there are still those problems prevalent today, but the fact that most of us do not have those problems, is there a rootlessness that causes this isolation in spite of the greater population and communication? In the past, I sent a lot of definitions about who we are and what we're doing here and all of those kinds of questions were defined externally. Mm-hmm. In other words, the church defined what was good and what was bad and how you live and how you were supposed to feel and how you were to look toward God. And all of these issues, they married you, they christened you, they buried you. And now, for example, we have given a lot more pluralism within uh, religion and spirituality. For example, it isn't even a formal religion per se. We've given the power to ourselves to define our place in this world as versus being totally the recipient of somebody else defining it for us. And I think that's a change. The technological wonders have freed us up to wonder, saying, hey, you know, we can do all this. Mm -hmm. Now, what else can we do about us as human beings? Because we still have this internal craving to be heard and to be understood, whether that is through prayer or whether it's by talking to another human being Mm -hmm. or whether it's feeling comfortable with who we are as Mm -hmm. as a human person. Those are eternal, but in the past they were defined externally. What I believe has happened is that we are getting closer to giving people the power to develop them internally. And I think some people are taking them before they're even given to them and saying, you know, I'm going to be the one who will define where I will find my God. I am going to be the one who will find out why I am here on this earth. So basically, James, in a sense, you would say that in deciding and adopting your master's program back in the... What year specifically are we talking about here when you... 1966 master's. Okay, in 1966, when you were deciding on perhaps taking a path in the clergy uh, to help people or perhaps taking a path to study people's motivations in psychology and help them through that, was the observation that you just quoted that of yours that the church perhaps externally defined people more than you would like influence you not to take that church route, so to speak, to any degree? Probably so, because I had grown up in a very conservative Protestant denomination Mm -hmm. where everything was defined externally. This is the way it was, and you had better fit the mold. As versus psychology gave me the opportunity to say, I am a unique human being, and I must find my own path. Mm -hmm. I can learn from all of this information, all of this knowledge of the past, but my path is unique. It is not the same as any other person's. What was the next step in your professional involvement? After I finished my master's degree, I decided to go to try to work at the college level. But prior to that, I had worked in high school, 8th, ninth, and 10th grades. So I went to work at a junior college in Maryland for one year and taught political science and government. So you actually went back to your your bachelor's. I went back to my bachelor's because, once again, that was where the job was. Mm-hmm. And I went there, and I also, that was the year that I ran for delegate to the Constitutional Convention of Maryland. Maryland was rewriting its state constitution. 
And I thought it would be fun to go out and run for office. And I thought, well, I don't really have any particular strong feelings being Democrat or Republican, but I have some ideas on how government may be put together. Mm. So I had a wonderful time running for state constitutional convention and teaching because then this taught me something very important to me that's always been a critical point in friendship and anything else is that the experiential model works best for me. Mm. And therefore, I sense it works better for a number of other people. Not all people, but a number of other people. How did your election turn out? And I ran 16th out of the field of 20. Well, And there were four delegates. I decided to take off a trip and go to Scandinavia. (laughs) But I feel like I, as a teacher, communicated with my students in political science something of immense value. Mm. That if I were to talk with those students today, they're working in this campaign. They're being out to find out what goes on in rallies. How do people make decisions to be for or against a change in government? Mm. This was what was important, not my running. It was fun. But I, as a teacher, that was first and foremost. Then I decided that it was time to go on for my doctorate, and I really wanted to go more in the direction of psychology. The thing I really liked about political science was the behavior of politicians, propaganda, manipulation, those things that happen to go with behavior patterns. Early 70s, I take it, you're taking your doctorate, and what university is this? University of Northern Colorado. And what brought you out there? Well, I had spent my master's in Montana, and I vowed I would never be that cold again. I mean, just as simple as that. And there was this school that was very existentially oriented, Uh and so that was where I went. My master's program was very psychoanalytically oriented, Mm -hmm. and I'd had a heavy dose of behaviorism. Mm-hmm. And I decided that in order to really complete my, what I call a well-rounded person, other than having one point of view, I wanted to go to school with a different philosophy. It's kind of like I want to be participant, say, in the Baptist faith, but to well-round it, I would want to experience the Lutherans and the Episcopals and the Presbyterians and the Methodists. and The, the same philosophy which is saying... The more globality, the the more diversity, the more different ways I can experience, I get away from that it being this way or that way. It's somewhere in between. And that's what I did. I wanted to find a school that would have a different point of view away from the psychoanalytic and the behavioral model. And I did, plus being warmer. And I think by traveling, you seem to indicate that experiencing different cultures, different places, different climes, that you are actually forcing yourself out of various thought patterns, too, by connecting them with a new experience. How far back was it that you first began to relate to people on ships in a therapeutic context? When I started my private practice in North Carolina, I lived in a relatively small town. The whole county only had 26,000 people in it. So you had come back to the Tidewater area? Well, this was the western part of North Carolina. Okay. And I decided that I had my private practice. But one of the things that I learned was that if you're in a small town or a small community, you're always on call, seven days a week. And that was fine, but it never gave me a chance to get away. And the best time to get away was to be on a ship. Mm. So what I did was take a week off. I worked 11 weeks and took the 12th week off. So actually, there was a moment in time where you were functioning as a traditional 
therapy-based psychologist. Correct. And this was after you had gotten your doctorate. I finished my doctorate, went to North Carolina, and taught at a small Baptist college for three years in the area of psychology. Taught the whole range of courses. Had a wonderful three years, but once again, I realized I was ready for another dimension. Mm -hmm. And private practice was something I wanted to experiment with. Mm -hmm. I wanted to see what it was like. I had my hesitancies because it was going to be problem-oriented. It was going to be treatment-oriented. But I wanted to go ahead and see what it was like anyway. That's when I joined a medical clinic up in North Carolina. There were nine physicians in myself. And I did the regular practice, 11 weeks, and then the 12th week, I'd take a trip. And so that's the way I did it. And yet I found that people were always looking for me to listen to them. And these were basically healthy people. And that's when it hit me. It was not the unhealthy people who had this yearning. Mm -hmm. They did. They had taken the path of creating a problem so they could be heard. You're saying the unhealthy people created it. Well, the, the model up until that time was, if I want somebody to hear me, I had better create a problem. That's almost cynically con condemning the person with the problem, though, to as having caused their own problem, isn't okay. it? It's saying that I have needs, and many do have needs, and one way to do that is to do very much like the child mm -hmm. who does create problems, but also is created by the environment within him and around him. It's not an either-or thing. It's a blend of some people saying, hey, I'm not being heard, my illness, my pain, my difficulties, mm -hmm. my stresses, all of these are not being heard until I get a problem. But what I heard on the ships was something very fascinating, was mm -hmm. the typical person saying, I need to be heard too. And I said, well, you know, to me that's really something very significant. Another junction at my path was, mm -hmm. do I continue town where people come with illnesses and needing treatment? And needing that, and that's still being a need, mm -hmm. as versus people who also had needs but didn't have someone to listen to. Mm -hmm. What was there particularly about the aspect of being on the ship that you feel broke down the barriers that a lot of these people had that would want to cause them to communicate? Well, first of all, in communicating to you particularly, did they know that you were a clinical psychologist or you just happened to get into situations with your natural inclination to listen, they were talking to you? Probably the second, because I started off under camouflage, telling them I taught history. You know, and nobody wants to talk about a teacher of history. And that's true, they didn't. I mean, mm -hmm. nobody wouldn't want to talk about, what do you do? Oh, I teach history? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. And then we moved on. So I found that what people wanted was just somebody who says, I agree to listen, because I really realized how rare it is to have somebody who will just say, I will listen to what you have to say. Mm -hmm. I was somebody who would not be there to judge them. I didn't know their family. I didn't know their position in the community. All I saw was a person. That's what I saw. Not their bank account, not where they live, not the car they drove, or anything else. Mm -hmm. All I saw was the person. This is James Huey, your host of Power for Positive Living. 
I invite you to join me each week as we participate together in the adventures of personal growth psychology. I'll be talking with some interesting guests, and I urge you to call in to share your views with us. Also, we shall be discussing some practical and diverse ways to enrich the quality of your life. So please join me here on KGBC each Thursday evening at 8 o'clock following the Bill Michelle Show.